Hello, dental online trainers. This is Dr. Dennis Hartley. Welcome to another episode of DOT Sharecast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Hello, dental online trainers. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, and welcome to today's edition of DOT Sharecast. With me today, via the World Wide Web and Zoom, is one of my dear friends, and someone who also happens to be one of the dental world's foremost experts on occlusion and TMJ, Dr. Jim McKee. Hello, Jim. Good morning. Good morning, Dennis. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, for those who don't know Jim, uh, be so many accolades, but just a couple things. Jim is past president of the American Equilibration Society, and most recently the past president of one of my favorite organizations, the American Academy of Restorative Dentistry. Uh, Jim, until the COVID pandemic, has been going around the world lecturing to dentists on a subject that many dentists still don't understand, that the way our teeth fit together, our occlusion, is actually related to the way our joints are positioned, or our condyles positioned in the sockets. We're going to talk a lot about that in just a little bit. Jim, who knew teeth and TMJ? There's a relationship. <laughs> Completely I certainly shocking. didn't. I certainly didn't in the early years. There's no doubt about that. No doubt. Uh, anyhow, besides practicing in the Chicago suburb of Downers Grove, Jim is also on faculty at the Spear Institute. And we'll be talking about Jim's, uh, where Jim is teaching now and sort of all that type of stuff in just a bit. But finally, official good morning to you, Jim, and congratulations on becoming a grandfather this week. Thank you. Thanks. It's really exciting. How's baby Jude Francis doing? And mom, everyone's doing fine? Everyone's doing okay. Everyone's doing okay. So we're ecstatic. Now, for those of you who are viewing this, you will see Jim is in his backyard. You can see this lovely summer day. Now, we're in Chicago area, so you can see that it's, uh, this is not February. <laughs> Jim has a screen, <laughs> screenshot behind him. This is, uh, we are in the summer months of the 2020 pandemic. Uh, and so, Jim, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, uh, how are you? How's your family? How's your team members? How's the practice? Uh, we're shortly two months after closing down for several months for the pandemic. So how, how's everybody? How's the family? How's your team? How's the practice? We're very fortunate. Everyone's healthy. Family's healthy. Um, obviously, we were concerned with our daughter being pregnant. So we really were careful and she was very careful. Um, but everyone's been great. Actually, interestingly enough, we closed May, March 18th, opened May 28th, but we opened the week before that, and we did have a team member whose husband tested positive, and then she tested positive. Oh, interesting. So we all had to get tested. We're all negative, but then had to quarantine till we opened May 28th. So it was an interesting start right out of the bat to see something close. I mean, it's interesting. The staff member who was exposed said, it was like a typical cold, maybe a little worse, but she goes, I've been far sicker with other things. So it was interesting to hear the perspective. She did lose taste and smell, and that took a while to come back. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it was three or four days, and she was back, same with her husband. So it's nice to see that, while you hear a lot of tough stories about this, it's nice to see that people do recover from this and are able to move on. So hopefully we'll be able to get this under control soon. Um, you know, it's interesting from a dental perspective. You know, we were really busy going into this. A lot of practice. Out. 
I think, and, I think the, the, the winter of 2020, it seemed like dental practices around the country, everyone I spoke to, it seemed like their practices were just rocking and rolling. And then, then we hit the brakes. And it was like, if people are not familiar with Chicago, it's like there's a certain point on the highway where you're driving 70 miles an hour and all of a sudden you're not driving five miles an hour. And that's kind of how it was. Yeah. You know, we had patients booked, you know, deep into April and had a lot of restorative cases going, had a lot of joint cases going. And all of a sudden that basically, like you said, came to a halt. So when we came back, we had all those patients, the active patients, plus the new patients who were calling. And it seemed like after we were open a couple of weeks, we got a flood of new patient calls because I think people had been waiting till things opened up and give it a week or two to get settled. And then they started calling. So we've been extremely busy, um, which is, it's a nice problem. I've been busy and I've been slower. I like being busy better. <laughs> no doubt about it. Jim, I have, we have a lot of young dentists that are part of dental online training. We, we actually have a lot of dental students also. Awesome. What was the emotion like for you? You've been practicing for about 35 years. Yep. What's the emotion of like of shutting down the practice? Uh, you know, you've been, you've been growing your practice, you've been building your practice and all of a sudden, you have to stop your practice. What was the emotion like that for you? You know, it was a combination of two feelings. Number one. Number one is how am I going to manage it? But honestly, number two, it was the sabbatical that I always wanted that I never thought I would have, to be really honest with you. I didn't set an alarm for eight weeks. Was <laughs> that was kind of nice. Now, having said that, I'm fortunate at my point in, this, in my career that this happened where I'm not a young dentist. I didn't have loans on the practice. So it really wasn't. I was in a different position. I think if I was a younger dentist, I would have been considerably more stressed out about it. For sure. Um, And I totally understand that. But I guess the message to the young dentist is, I learned this lesson early and I was fortunate. When I was a young dentist, I was going through consulting with some different consulting organizations. And one of the messages that came through was create a reserve fund for your practice. And you know what? I always took that to heart. So I've always had a stash that I've kept away and I could have put it into retirement funding or other investments, but I kept it liquid and I kept it available if I needed it for a rainy day in the practice. That's That's great advice. I'll tell you, that has been a great tip because it gives you such peace of mind. I remember as a young dentist, there's times, you know, you can't wait to get home to open the deposit to make sure you've got enough to cover payroll or rent the next Sure, time. absolutely. That's not a fun way to practice. It's not. It is not. So, I think that's, that's great advice for your, in your life and in your dental practice, yeah, in your business, for sure. make sure that you put something away. I think that's so true. And, you know, one of the, the other thing I learned at the Panky Institute, this was one of the discussion points when I was going through Panky in the early 90s, is, you know, live within your life, live within your means. Yes. You know, I, I've seen a lot of dentists get out and spend on big houses and big cars and country clubs and second homes. And you, there's a time to do that. Yep. But, you know, unless you come from financial means, which I didn't, I always say I was born handsome instead of wealthy. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you're, you're very wealthy in your looks. Yeah, I was, I was doing a lecture once. The guy in the front row said, he goes, I hate to tell you, you didn't get either. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, 
live within your means and put something away each month so you have something personally to retire on. And then, but also don't forget the practice part. Yep. Break a little reserve fund for your practice. So if you're in into a bump like this, I just wrote an article about this for Spear Digest maybe a few months ago. And I said, make sure that you budget into your profit and loss every month a certain percentage that you can put away and just build a little professional nest egg for your practice. That's great advice. Great advice. Hey, Jim, as we continue our conversation, uh, I want to give the readers, the listeners, the viewers of, uh, of the pot, of the sharecast, a little of your background. So you were born and raised in Chicago, right? I was South side of Chicago. Uh, went to St. Bede's grammar school, went to St. Ignatius high school, and then spent four years at the university of okay. Notre Dame. Well, I was just going to talk about that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, someone who's been as successful as you are in dentistry, how you had to overcome this challenge of, because you couldn't really get into college. So, I mean, you almost went to like a community college. They call it the University of Notre Dame, but it's kind of like a community college. And so for those who can't really get into college, they let them go to University of Notre Dame. So I just find it amazing how you've been successful despite being just pulled back by, you know, this, this institution that you, you know, that you had to survive at for four years. So kudos to you, Jim. That's really, that's really exciting. Well, it's interesting because I had a wonderful four years at Notre Dame and I was lucky. I got to go to a lot of really fun events there, concerts, lectures, sporting events. In fact, Dennis and I have been there together. <laughs> we, we've Dennis, happened to be, we've happened Dennis to be at the Notre, Dame, the Notre Dame Michigan game a few years ago. And if you know Dennis, you know Dennis is a big Michigan fan. Um, in spite of that, we still talk to him. Um, but Dennis was a little mouthy on the way down, but he wasn't as mouthy on the way back. So, <laughs> the, the, the longest day of my life going to that football game. <laughs> so, all right. So, Jim, moving on. <laughs> Fo following, following your years at this so-called prestigious university, <laughs> you went to dental school at University of Illinois in Chicago, right? Correct. All right, Jim, why did you become a dentist? What was it about dentistry that, uh, that got you interested? This is a funny story, and not a lot of people know it, but actually my undergrad degree is in accounting. Oh, interesting. So I'm, I'm an accountant by education. I went to Notre Dame, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to dentistry accounting. And I was a chemistry major the first two years. The upper-level chemistry courses didn't look great. Um, I went into accounting, and I loved accounting and did great. So I was really fortunate. When I got out of Notre Dame, I had a job offer with the then big eight accounting firms. Um, I remember it was 1979. It would have been $16,500 was the salary with Pete Marwick, which is now KMPG. And I'm thinking, I can't spend all that money, man. This is awesome. Yeah, they, they are, our young dentists are listening. They're like, that's like, a, that's one month of my, I know. Uh, my, of my, of my loan on my school debt, right? I could have lived downtown Chicago. You know, I had it all worked out. Um, I'd also applied to U of I and got in for a master's in accounting because I was thinking about doing some postgrad work in business. And I applied to dental school and I got in. So I really didn't know what I was going to do. I decided I wanted to give dentistry a shot, and I went down to U of I Dental School, and it was awesome. You know, I had a great four years there. I came out, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I ended up, a dentist who was my comprehensive instructor senior year said that there was a woman in Downers Grove at a practice for sale, and I went and talked to her, and I went out and started there, and oh, it was a small, 
it was a small, small, small practice. I was, she was there two days a week. She had an associate there. It was two days a week. The associate was another female who passed down the practice because she wanted to start a family and she was going to relocate. So I was left with a two-day-a-week practice. I started in September and she left in January. And so there was no transition. Oh, interesting. Um, and it was meager. It was really meager, to be honest. So, Jim, going back to dental school for just a second, and, and obviously things have changed from when you and I were in dental school 30-some years later. I, I, think, I think essentially dental school is very, very similar, but there are some things that are significantly different. Uh, and especially today, and uh, being, from, uh, being part of Marquette Dental School and, and talking to a lot of young dentists and dental students, there's some significant challenges with COVID for our, for our dental students right now. And they're, they're really having some challenges. But what advice, looking back at dental school, you in dental school, what advice would you give to the young dental student today? People who are in dental school, um, either during this COVID time or when we get past this COVID time, what, if you had a kid going into dental school, what would your recommendation be for that young person getting into dental school or being in dental school? Find a practicing dentist that you can mentor with. Looking back on it, if I had it to do over, I would have loved to have someone who was in the field making sense of what I was learning in dental school. So now, again, the problem is you have to find someone who has a practice style that you want to emulate. Yep. When I was a young dentist, I had no idea what a practice style was, and I didn't know what I was going to build. I think that's really true for most dentists. Unless you have a dentist in the family, you right. don't know what type of dentistry is out there, right? I mean, you just think dentistry is dentistry, I think, for the most part. For, for sure. No idea. So I wish I would have had someone who could have maybe showed me the ropes a little mm -hmm. bit, not only from the clinical side, but from the managerial side. Sure. Yeah. You know, because really owning a private practice, you're, you're a small business owner. Without and question. Fortunately, to be honest with you, my accounting background came in helpful with that because I had exposure to financial information. I had exposed to some management information, but, you're woefully underprepared to run a business as a dentist. So it would be nice as a young dentist, if you can find someone in your community or now digitally, you can do it anywhere you want. Yep. who would be willing to work with you to kind of give you the ins and outs of what you should be thinking about. You know, I remember in dental school, I had enough on my plate with the clinical side, learning the skills that for sure really couldn't even deal with the management part because it meant nothing to me. Yep but it would have been nice to at least have those seeds planted earlier for me than they were. And that's a great point up at Marquette Dental School. They have a mentorship program. I know I've lectured yeah. there twice. Right, yes, you have. It. Right. Yeah, Over 500 that. participants between yeah. uh, dentists. And so there's over a hundred dentists, I believe that volunteer their time and they'll have anywhere from one to several protégés. And the idea is to help these dental students understand and guide them through not just the issues of the clinical dentistry, but what it's like to be a business owner. Because, you know, as we have found out during COVID, we're ahead of HR, we're ahead of, uh, you know, financials, we're ahead of everything. And one of them, I think one for me, one of the biggest challenges in dentistry is not, you can't just concentrate on the dentistry. You have to learn all this other stuff. So I think that's great advice. Great advice. Yeah. No, you have to learn that stuff. That's the stuff that, in reality, if you don't learn that, many times you never get a chance to do the dentistry. 
Yes. That's a problem. I, you know, we, in, in my Surecast and along the way, I talk a lot about mentorship and you brought that up right away. And that's a theme that I think that was important for me in dental school. I latched onto a prosthodontist. And so I would hang out in the pros clinic and I was just like a fly on the wall. Sure. Looking back, I wish I would have done it more. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I was annoying <laughs> as it was. But in my third year, I just started hanging out at the pros clinic. And it, it made a difference for me to start seeing things a little, a little bit more developed. I still didn't under things, understand things enough. Sure. But I wish I would have been more aggressive and, and seeking mentorship because yeah. it, it's embarrassing to have such little knowledge and ask for help. But that's how we've all grown. That's how we learn is through mentorship. And, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I think dentistry is somewhat unique in terms of healthcare, especially when you compare it to medicine. Medicine is so big and medicine is basically completely commercialized, if you want to put it that way. You don't see a lot of private practices like you do in dentistry. Correct. And I think that there's kind of a mentorship that's almost built into our profession. No, I think you have to have, find the right dentist to be a mentor because not all dentists want to be a mentor. That's for sure. But if you can find the right dentist to be a mentor as a young dentist, it's invaluable. You know, I was yeah. lucky. I had some great mentors, you know. I had guys, you know, Pete Dawson was one of my early mentors and you couldn't have a better guy to, to bring you along in the inclusion world than Pete, but it can be any number of people either in your community or people that you meet at postgraduate education. Yep, I agree. So, hey, a question for you. Jumping into the Wayback Machine, <laughs> do you remember the first dental procedure you did on a human being? Uh, the first dental... So what is the first? What is the first dental procedure you remember doing as a, as a dental student or a young dentist? As a dental student, it would have been a profi. Okay. Because we had profi clinic freshman year. All right. What about, what about, a, what about a restorative procedure? In uh, I remember my first private practice procedure, which was, it was an amalgam buildup on number 19 it was a fractured lingual cusp. And I'm still proud to say patient is still a patient in the practice. That's fantastic. And yeah. is, the tooth, is the tooth still there? I just did a crown on the tooth two years ago. That amalgam lasted over 30 years. Yeah. That, that amalgam, so, it, can, it can stick around for a while, right? The, uh, the, I remember the second patient I did too. That was a root canal on number 14. Oh, I thought you were going to say the root canal on that same tooth. No, no, no. <laughs> that, the root canal number 14 is why I don't do endo in the practice. <laughs> and that patient, that patient is not currently a patient in the practice. I get that very much. I don't do endo either. I get that. <laughs> all right. So Jim, you, um, you know, you're, you're an expert on the human TMJ, first of all. What's it, what's it feel like when someone says that you're an expert? What's, what's, what's that feel like? I'm curious. The immediate pushback is to say, no, I'm not really an expert because I think the more you study, the more humbled you become. Mm -hmm. At least that's been my experience. I think we've made TMJ harder than it is. So in terms of being an expert, I really think if we all could see it from what it really looks like, we could all become more well-versed in it. Being an expert implies, I think sometimes when you know more than you do, mm -hmm. but 
I don't know. It's an interesting question, Dennis. I've never been asked that before. So I guess the immediate thing is to say, no, I'm not really an expert, <laughs> to be honest. But Well, I, I, I think that humbly that those who are experts and masters, they don't look at themselves necessarily as that. Uh, I think it's the outside world that determines. And so um, I, I know myself and my colleagues, we, we consider you to be the expert because I think also part of it is that your willingness to share the information. And I think that also is what makes the expert human is that they are able to transmit the information that they have learned either through others, through mentorship, through uh, trial and error, through learning, and they're able to then bring that information into others in a way that others can then take that information and bring it to their patients, which is the bottom line. And quite sure. honestly, it's why I do the sharecast, why I do DOT, sure. is so sure. others can bring it to their patients and, and elevate the level of care. Absolutely. All right, I have another question now. How much occlusion did you learn in dental school? <laughs> Not a lot. I came out completely. I, I didn't have any occlusal basis whatsoever. So I, I asked that because I had a little bit. Michigan was a very strong occlusion school. There was a master's of occlusion. So Michigan really pushed that. But I still didn't understand it. I didn't understand no. the difference between CR and CO back in the day. Uh, but I think what's interesting is, and as I speak to the young dentist, for, and I felt, you know, I hear this very often is that young dentists may be a little frustrated. I didn't learn this in dental school. How come they didn't teach me this in dental school? When you and I went to dental school, I like to describe it that we had a very limited amount of information that we had to learn. So we had to learn about PFM crowns. We had to learn about amalgams. We had to learn about gold. We learned about removables. We had like a limited amount of information, but we had to learn it a mile deep. I mean, I knew everything about amalgam. I knew everything about the shrinkage. I knew the different particle sizes. In today's world, there's so many materials. There's so much information that dental schools today have to teach everything an inch deep, but it's a mile wide because there's so much for them to learn. But even back when we were back in school and there's a limited amount of information that we had to learn so much about, I don't know that any of us got that much information on occlusion. I think all of us walked out saying, what the heck's a... You know, who cares? Why do we need an articulator? Who the heck would use a face bow? I think we were all in the same place 30 years ago as where dentists are today when it comes to occlusion. Would you agree? Completely. You know, you look at occlusion, it's really the one discipline in dentistry that's stuck. The concepts that were developed in occlusion that we use today mm -hmm. were developed probably in the late 50s and early 60s. And as a result, we're working on information that's probably 50 years old. Yep. All developed before we had the benefit of three-dimensional imaging to see the back end of the system and understand occlusion from a different perspective. Yep. And all of a sudden, because we're dentists, occlusion became about the teeth. That's one part of occlusion. Yep. But that's the problem. And quite honestly, I don't even think today occlusion is really understood well in most dental schools. Oh, I think that's for sure. At least when I talk to dental students coming out, um, and it's in general because it's not understood well in our profession. 
that's I, I would agree with that. Yeah, and that, that was one reason why I was excited to, to talk to you today is, so when I was in dental school, I remember learning about the condyle. I'm sure you did also, but sure. I don't remember learning that the condyle actually affected how the teeth fit together. I had, I had no understanding whatsoever of the relationship between the joints and the teeth. Yeah. In fact, what I learned, you know, when you got out of school, you start going to occlusion classes, you just learn that most of the time, if you had a problem at the joint level, it was because you had an uneven occlusion yes. and the muscles pull the disc off the condyle. Yes. And I think we were looking at the wrong end of the, uh, the horse. So, Jim, we going through dental school, and now you, you talked about how you got into your practice. Yeah. So if you're like me, you went into your practice and you started doing what you learned in dental school. How did you make the switch then to learning about uh, more sophisticated dentistry, occlusion, other dentistry? And I ask that because I'm you know, talking to the younger dentists. What did you do? How did you, like, where were you? So think back to those years, you're a few years into your practice or wherever you were, and then you, you were introduced into a, a different type of dentistry. I don't want to say a higher level, but a different type of dentistry. What was yep. your introduction into that? How, walk us through that. I had enough failed cases where I figured I needed to learn more. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the truth. truth. Yeah. That is the truth. Same with that me. That was that's my exactly primary it. motivating factor. I did a bridge on a guy from number seven to number 11. It was a five unit splint. I've shown this in lecture a lot. You may have seen it, but it's a five unit bridge I did from seven to 11 because the guy had worn teeth. Yep. I didn't realize that the teeth were short. I didn't realize they had erupted down. So I just prepped the teeth. I tied them together because the teeth were short and I didn't want the crowns to fall off. I created an uneven transition between the anterior occlusal plane and the posterior occlusal plane. He came back a year and a half later for a cleaning and his lower anterior teeth were destroyed, destroyed, worn off. The teeth were destroyed. I said, I can't keep doing it this way. I got to learn more. A month later, I got a flyer for an occlusion seminar that Pete Dawson was doing in Chicago. I went down, I took the train downtown to the Ambassador East Hotel. I heard Pete Dawson and I wondered, how did he get pictures of all my failed cases? <laughs> Basically, every case he showed were the failed cases. I'm thinking, this guy knows what he's talking about. I went back and saw Pete six months later in St. Petersburg. And there had an open house at the office one night after the course. And someone opened the drawer and it was, I'll never forget this. There were needles, there were saliva ejectors, and they were arranged almost the same way I had mine arranged in the office. And I said, you know what? I can do this. I can learn how to do this. This is the same setup I have. I can learn how to do this. So basically I started going to occlusion courses every six months. That's what I could afford to do. Yep. Um, I went then, then six months later, I, Pete was in Chicago again for a management course. So it was kind of a practice management slash clinical course, how to put your practice in the top 10%. I don't know. I if remember, you remember that course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a great course. Absolutely. And then I went down to St. Pete for a week long hands-on course. You know, that second course I told you about when I went down to St. Petersburg, I had no money. 
and there were two spots left open. They had just started hands-on courses down there. And I'm sitting at the desk there during the break, and then one person signs up. I'm like, oh, no. So I signed up, and I'm thinking, how am I going to pay for this? I figured out a way to pay for it. And at that course six months later is when I met Mark Piper. And that's the first time I saw joint imaging. So for me, when I started learning occlusion, I almost really started learning occlusion and joints together. Oh, that's because, interesting. Because from there then, I went to the Panky Institute. Pete had one more treatment planning course, Seminar 3. Um, that was six months later. And then I went to Panky in April of 91 and went every six months there. And basically, while I was doing that, I was also taking Mark Piper's series. So I was reading a lot of imaging early, you know, because MRIs came out in the late 80s. And I saw Mark in 1990. I took my first MRI in 1991. So I really got in on the ground floor. It was really dumb luck. I wish I could say I had planned it, but <laughs> that wouldn't be true. Well, I, uh, I want to bring up a few things. So first yeah. of all, for our listeners and viewers who aren't familiar with Peter Dawson, uh, Peter Dawson, I would, many of us, and probably most of us consider him to be the father of occlusion. Would you, would you agree? He was pretty much the Michael Jordan of dentistry. Yes. So I mean, he really was. And, and, and for our young dentists and for any experienced dentist, if you want to learn about occlusion, uh, you should pick up Peter Dawson's book, Fundamentals of Occlusion. Uh, while some things have changed, some, some thought processes behind, and including airway, though the newest um, edition does, he does talk about airway. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredible, uh, it's a Bible in, in understanding occlusion. And you will, you will not do yourself a dis disservice if you get in and you look at that and learn about Peter Dawson, what he brought to dentistry. Uh, secondly, uh, Mark Piper is an oral surgeon down in Florida who's dedicated his career to treating the TMJ and has done, I, I don't even know if you can estimate how many jaw surgeries or joint-based surgeries uh, Mark Piper's done. How many, how many would you say, Jim? You've known Mark a long time. I think he has 20,000 patients that are imaged. All right, so 20,000. That's a few joints that he's looked at. Yeah. Mark Piper, and if you, as you get starting into joint, uh, TM joint stuff, you'll learn that there's actually a Piper index where he goes through and we talk about different classifications, the Piper classification of joints. So Mark Piper has been incredibly influential in our understanding of, of TM joints uh, and the, uh, the anatomy of the joint. But there's one thing, Jim, I want to touch on that I think is critical for our young dentists is that like you, when I started taking these CE courses, uh, and I hate to use this language, I didn't have a, a pot to piss in. I was so poor. I was so broken poor. And I just scraped up pennies to be able to take courses. My, my big influence was, was Frank Spear. And I remember the first Spear course I took, I, I saw him, I saw him in Chicago several times, but then I went out to Seattle and saw him at the first course he held in his office. And he had just broken away from Coise and he was in downtown Seattle. Jim, it took me a year to pay off my, that course and the travel. And it was the best money I ever spent. And one of the most uh, phenomenal stories that I've heard is from John Cranham when he talks about going down to Dawson. And he was so poor, he slept in his car and he showered in the outdoor hotel shower before he would go in for the seminars. And his meals consisted of the continental breakfast and the lunch and any, any food he could pack away in his bag. 
So for those of those young dentists that are out there saying, I, I can't afford it. I just don't have the money. We get it. We get it. But you can't afford not to. Well, kind of like what I said before, when I started going to Panky, what I started doing is I paid ahead. Mm. I put $300 a month on my credit card. So by the time I got to the course, the course was paid for. Oh, that's wonderful advice. You know, that's I got to tell you, it was so nice to be able to go to that course knowing it was paid for because I had the same situation the dentist did. You know, I'd gone to some courses, then I had to pay afterwards. And you're thinking, how am I going to afford this? Yep. When I started going to pay, every, every month $300 was charged. So by the time I got there, I was done. I, same thing. Put a little bit away here. Put a little bit away there. You know, create a reserve fund in your practice. Create a continuing education fund for your development. I will tell you, you know, looking back at any amount of money that I have invested in my life, without a doubt, the greatest return on investment, because basically with any investment, people get emotionally locked into investments for certain things. Most important thing from an investment from a business perspective is your rate of return. ROI. So the greatest rate of return I have ever had is in continuing education. That the is money that I spent point. on continuing education can, relative to what that turned into in my practice over the years, there's nothing that could touch that in terms of any mutual fund, any venture capital fund you can invest in. The most profound return on investment you will get on your money is investing in yourself as a dentist and continuing education to allow you to have a greater skill set that you can offer solutions to patients' problems in your office. That That's so true, Jim. I think that what, I still love dentistry, you still love dentistry, one of the challenges I see for many dentists who aren't investing in their education is they, they get burned out. And certainly I've been burned out, I've been worn down, but I'm still challenged by the dentistry. And for those dentists, in my opinion, in my opinion, those dentists who haven't invested in their education, they, they, if you do the same thing day after day, year after year, you have to get tired of it. And it's so they start looking for other things, right? They find other ways to, uh, to spend their time. And I think many of them start to begrudge dentistry. And so if you want to be doing this for 30 years, and if you want to have enjoyment, and that is not all enjoyment, trust me, in practice is hard. Dentistry is really hard, and there's struggles and there's frustrations. But overall, the big picture of it, if you want to enjoy what you're doing, invest in your education so you can do it more and more and do it differently than what you were doing 30 years ago. Totally. 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 I can't agree more. So Jim, getting back to uh, Pete and uh, Mark Piper, what were you thinking as a young dentist as you were going through this? I'm curious, right? You're, so you're learning this, you're trying to bring it back into your practice. What's sort of going through your mind as you're, as you're learning about the joints and occlusion. What were some of your frustrations? What were some of your successes? Tell me a little bit what was going on back in those five, 10 years as you're getting into this stuff. Primary question is how am I gonna implement this in my practice? Right, we, that's what I found with Spear also. That's exactly how I what I found with this Spear? in my practice. You know, I saw those guys doing cases that I wasn't doing. Yep. And I had to 
figure out a way that I could bring it back to my patients from a clinical perspective as well as a verbal skills perspective. You know, and not how only did you do that, how did you do that? What would you, you look back at those days and you're, you, and this is where I was too with, with Spear. I had this information and I, and I couldn't do the dentistry uh, because I, 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 I didn't have the verbal skills to be able to sit down with patients and help them understand. And I probably didn't have a deep enough understanding of what I was trying to do. So what did you do? How did you, how did you cross that hurdle? How did you get over that hurdle? It was like Nike. I just did it. And basically what I did when I say just do it, the best advice I can offer a young dentist is to create a diagnostic protocol in your practice for the type of dentistry you want to do. If you want to say do create a diagnostic protocol in your practice for the type of dentistry that you want to do. If you're going to do aesthetic dentistry like dentist does, you're going to have to have a certain number of records you're going to need. You're going to need photographs. You probably need study model, study casts. Create that protocol in your office. Because when I started doing that, that's when I gained confidence because then I had enough information to do a treatment plan so I could do a case like they were doing. Because before I had that diagnostic information, I couldn't put the case together the same way they were putting the case together. When I say they, I mean the people I'd see lecturing. And therefore, I couldn't get the results that they were getting. Once I started to realize that part of the ability to do those cases is the diagnostic phase of it, yep. that's when my practice changed. That's really interesting. I, I I have a, we were talking, I have an associate, or I'm sorry, I have a resident in the practice through the AACD, uh, Dr. Satyam Patel. And that's exactly what we've been doing with Satyam. And I guess I didn't realize that, Jim. I've been having him do the very basic fundamentals, digital photography, taking face bows, taking bite registrations, mounting cases, uh, um, you know, trimming bite registrations, all these things that are in the protocol right. to be right. able to analyze a case. Right. We're looking at his mom's case right now. And so that's, he's at the point now where he's, he's scanning, he's taking photographs, he's doing all that stuff. And so now he can take a look at the case, but you're exactly right. Following those protocols then gives you the starting point. And I think that's excellent advice. Because ultimately it's about treatment planning. That's exactly it, right? The success of your practice will depend upon your ability to treatment plan cases. So in order to treatment plan, you have to recognize the problem. You have to make sure the patient understands there are prob there's a problem. And you have to be able to develop a solution that you can explain to the patient so that the patient says, okay, this makes sense to me. Now, how much is it going to cost? Either I can do all of it now because either I have the financial means to do it or I recognize the importance of it. Maybe I'll reprioritize my finances to be able to, to afford it. On the other hand, you know what? I can't do it all now. And then if you have that diagnostic protocol, that allows you to be able to start phasing cases more effectively. So the first thing you asked me before is what do I do? To, how was I thinking? The first thing I was thinking is how do I implement? But really, I think implementation comes down to being able to phase cases. Because Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree you go, more. 
when you go to lectures, you see a lot of big cases. And, you know, as you become a more mature dentist, you tend to present things in a different way because you have a different understanding of it. And therefore, patients tend to say yes more. So you get the opportunity to do bigger cases. But as a younger dentist, I wasn't getting that opportunity. No way. So if I could break that case down and do a little bit at a time, that's how I started to implement more into the practice. You know, there's an old saying that a full mouth rehabilitation is really just a lot of small cases on one patient. <laughs> that, that's a great line. <laughs> one of our most popular courses on the DOT website is uh, my course, the CPR for the worn dentition. Sure. That's a great course. Thank you. And the reality is, is that mo even today, most of my patients, either they can't afford to do a full mouth reconstruction or they don't want to emotionally, they don't want to be drilling down their teeth for a full mouth reconstruction. But sure. if we can set up the case, if we understand the joints and if we understand occlusion and we understand aesthetics, we can set the case up and then we can piece by piece, we can piecemeal it, but we've set up the case for success. And it's all based on those protocols as you described. Completely agree. Jim, as you, as you were getting into this, was it scary for you to start thinking about that you're going to be treating TMJ patients, the TMJ patient? Was that scary to you? No, because, all right, let me backtrack this with a story. Okay. I was lecturing at the Spear Summit three or four years ago. It was a big lecture, 1,200 dentists in the room. And before lecture, a woman came up to me and said, I know you're going to talk about TMJ patients, and I'm really scared to treat TMJ patients. That was my next question is, how do you talk for our young dentists? Because I yeah. was scared. I was personally scared to treat TMJ patients. I was afraid of going, I was afraid of jumping into this dark water. It looked cold. It looked shark infested, um, cra crazy patients um, that you can't treat uh, I was I was very scared, and I think a lot of my colleagues feel the same way. For sure, and, and even dentists who've been practicing for thirty years don't want to treat the TMJ patient. So we're talking to young dentists and and experienced dentists. Continue your story. I apologize for interrupting, but I had no. to interrupt because absolutely, absolutely, not just that, not the, just that participant. So this woman comes up to me and says, "I'm afraid to treat TMJ," and I said, "I totally get it." I said, so let me ask you a question. I said, did you do endo? She goes, oh, I love doing endo. I said, so let's say a patient comes in to see you and they have a carious exposure on tooth number 14. Okay. And they want to keep the tooth. They want you to do the root canal. And they want you to do it today, but your x-ray machine is broken. I said, how confident would you be starting the root canal without a radiograph of the tooth? She goes, well, I couldn't start the case. I said, it's the same thing with TMJ. I mean, really think about it. The primary treatment for a TMJ patient, usually the first line of treatment is what? It's an occlusal appliance. Right. Correct. It's some type of bite plate, whether it's Correct. an anterior programmer, whether it's a gelb appliance, whether it's a quick splint, whether it could be any of those things. Yes. But basically, what we're doing is we're treating the anatomy without understanding the condition of the anatomy treating the anatomy of the tmj or the TMJ. Right. because basically anytime we change the occlusion either through an appliance or through restorative dentistry we're changing the way the forces are distributed to the tissue at the tooth level and at the joint level 
And if we don't understand the condition of the tissue that we're influencing, it's going to be difficult. Go back to the endo discussion. What's your prognosis discussion going to be with a patient who has a molar that has straight roots that are easy to negotiate versus someone who has curved canals that are calcified? Right. You're going to have different prognosis discussion based on the anatomy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Same thing with TMJ. If you don't, if we can't see the anatomy, and you know, it's interesting, Mark Piper has been known as a surgeon, but honestly, I think Mark's greatest contribution to dentistry has been the ability to assess the risk factors and the jaw joints for restorative dentists. I really think that's the biggest contribution he's had for me is because I'm a restorative dentist. I need to be able to understand when my restorative dentistry is going to be at risk or how do I set up the occlusion in my restorative dentistry without understanding how the forces are distributed at the back end of the system in terms of what the anatomy is to distribute those forces, that becomes a murky conversation. That becomes the dark water. That becomes the shark infested water where you don't know what's there because if you have imaging, that water becomes really clear. You can see the bottom of the lake. Yep. It's a beautiful picture. I agree. But if you don't have it, then it's shark infested and it's scary. I think there's a misconception, it certainly was for me, that you cannot treat the TMJ patient, that you cannot do dentistry on the TMJ patient. Here's the reality. We're doing, a, we're doing dentistry on TM patients who have joint problems every day. I'd rather know about it than not know about it. Well, I think that's exactly it. I think that uh, many of us are under the disbelief or misbelief that we're not treating TMJ patients or people yeah. with TMD, but we are, we very often just don't know that we are until sometimes very often uh, something goes awry and then it becomes very evident. But the reality is if you're practicing dentistry, you are likely practicing or not even likely you are practicing on patients who have some TMD or some TMJ issues. See, here's the problem that I, I, that I really want young dentists to understand. We as a profession have, devi- is, have defined TMJ patients as pain patients. Correct. Pain in this joint is like any other situation in the body. It's typically more of a last stage. The astute diagnostician will almost always see an occlusal change before there is pain. By the time it starts to hurt, the horses are out of the barn. Right. The most common occlusal manifestation of a structural alteration at the joint is a change in how the front teeth contact. Jim, I really want to uh, stress this because this has been something that's been profound for me in my practice. I want you to explain that a little bit. And again, this is for many, um, many people are going to be either reading this or listening to it, so they may not be viewing it. But this is really important to understand what you just said. So can you talk about that and talk about anterior open bites and stuff? Because this is so important. And if anyone's going to get anything out of this share cast is this, this bit of information right here when we're talking about how, how a dentist, even a young dentist or an experienced dentist, how a dentist can say, hey, there's something going on 
that is more than just a tooth related issue. Go ahead. Sure. If, if you think about how the system is put together, we've got the teeth on the front end of the mandible, we've got the condyle on the back end of the mandible. The condyle fits into the base of the skull, the joint socket, and it's a ball and socket joint. We have a disc on top of the condyle to protect the bone, but I want you to think of the disc in a different way. Think of the disc as a gasket. And a gasket is like, you know, when you open your refrigerator, there's the plastic that when you close the door seals it so the cold air doesn't get out. Yeah, that's great, great analogy. It's a soft material between two harder materials and it fills the space. That's basically what a disc does. Yep. And what it does, it positions the condyle in the middle of the joint socket. So now we have a repeatable pathway that we can develop a conclusion for. Yep. And if we have a normal joint, and the disc is maintaining its space and filling that between the top of the joint socket and the condyle, our front teeth are typically going to come together in a class one occlusion. Nice bite. Right. Now, they may be crooked, they may be rotated, that can be fixed, but normally they're going to fit together. Now, if that disc, which is attached with ligaments, and if those ligaments tear and that disc comes forward, that condyle can change positions. The condyle and the teeth are basically the same mineralized structure. If the condyle changes position, the teeth are going to change position. Because they're all connected. It's one piece. It's all one piece. It's all one piece. And teeth that used to fit like this Where you now have a, have a nice class one occlusion. Fit like this. Here's where we get fooled as dentists. We check the bite in maximum intercuspation where the patient closes. Correct. And what happens is we can position our mandible to get the teeth to fit together. Yes. If we're going to pick up the potential discrepancy at the joint level or the structural change at the joint level, we need to check it from a skeletal position. So simply seat the joints. You can use... Depends on where you learned it. I went to Dawson first, so I learned by manual manipulation. Dennis went to Frank. Frank probably taught leaf gauge. If you go to John Coyce, John's going to teach a deprogrammer. All those are ways to seat the condyle in the joint socket. Because basically, the reason we check it there is because that's where the muscles are going to put it if the teeth aren't in the way. That's where it wants to go. That's where it's going to go if the teeth aren't in the way. Yep. And it's where the force is best distributed as well, right. assuming, assuming we have an intact condyle disc assembly. That the but disc that is in disc, the right place. Yeah, if the disc is in the right place. But if the disc comes off and the bone repositions, the teeth will reposition. And if we see an uncoupling of the anterior teeth greater than the thickness of the disc, that should raise a suspicion. Now, we, that has to be assessed in a seated joint position. Right. So, so, however you're going to so if someone has an anterior open bite, yes. is your first thought when you look at that person, they have an anterior open bite, is your first thought, I wonder if there's a disc between the condyle and the inferior border of the skull. Is that your first thought if there's an anterior open bite? 100% of the time. 
And I want to talk about Lisa, your wife, because I think you guys have a really unique practice. Uh, your, uh, Lisa is a general dentist, but her practice is, I believe, limited just to orthodontics. Is that correct? That's all she's done for the last 30 years. And I would imagine that as she has practiced with you, a lot of her orthodontics is based on patients who have a displaced disc or no disc, and she's treating non-ideal uh, physiology and morphology of the kind of the uh, uh, TM uh, joint area. Is that correct? Absolutely. And honestly, you know, Lisa had already had an interest in ortho. The reason she got into it is because I was really looking for orthodontic support and it was difficult to find orthodontic support for people that were looking at the same things that I was looking at. That's exactly to my point because I've had, I've been challenged in my community to find orthodontists who understand this relationship of the condyle to the joint space and how the teeth fit in with that. And very often we'd have patients who come in an MIP with their teeth fitting together but when we seat their joints, they have a completely messed up bite, premature contacts on the posteriors, issues like that. There's no, there's no screening with looking for joint issues for these type of patients. And it's very frustrating. And I think it's fantastic that you and Lisa have been able to partner to be able to help your patients to be able to get this, you know, a stru structurally sound foundation with the teeth in the right position. I think that's fantastic. It's been awesome to work together. It really has been fabulous. So for orthodontists out there, I think it's critical. And I don't know, as you've been teaching at Spear and as you've taught around the world, yes. Jim, how many orthodontists do you get into your courses and stuff? Uh, we have quite a few orthodontists in our courses. That's great. Um, and honestly, we're getting more all the time. The number of orthodontists that are starting to look at joints is amazing. That's great. Um, well, here's the reason why, because they have to. Because, because the dentists are working with are forcing them to? Because I think what's happening is the typical orthodontic practice, the number of class two patients that the typical orthodontic practice is seeing today mm -hmm. is markedly increased than it was five years ago. Why do you, why do you say that is? Because most of the easy class ones, a lot of general dentists are doing with Invisalign. Oh, I got it. So, so the, it isn't that there's more class twos. It's just that they're treating proportionally more class twos because GPs are doing the easier cases. Very picking the easy ones. My, my belief is that the class two occlusion, and this is supported in the literature, has a high correlation to having structural changes at the joint level, just as we talked about. Yes. Yep. So... You talk to an average orthodontist today, it's not uncommon to hear them say, when I say, what percentage of your new patients are class two? 50, 60? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the number of structure altered joints they're seeing in patients that don't hurt. Yes. Because the 12 year old female with the small condyle in the class two with the facial asymmetry generally doesn't hurt. Just and had all that conversation. Sudden, just had that conversation with the patient this week. And all of a sudden, now what do we do? We try to correct the class two occlusion. So we put them in headgear, which restricts maxillary growth to let the mandible catch up. Yep. The bigger question is why is the mandible need to catch up? Why is the mandible not growing? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. We talk about how important the tongue is in growing the maxilla. Yep. 
why doesn't the disc get the same respect in growing the mandible? Oh, that's a great question, Jim. I have not heard that question posed before. I think yeah. that's an excellent question to ask. You know, if you really think about it, the soft tissue is what's driving the bony expansion of the masticatory system. Right. The tongue at the maxilla and the disc at the mandible. And okay. here's the problem. If, if the disc comes off and the mandible isn't growing, the maxilla is not going to grow well either. Right. Those teeth interdigitate and start to grow and pull everything forward. If all of a sudden that's not the case, that's where you start to see these narrow-shaped arches on the maxilla. You see the retronathic mandible. And all of a sudden now they have airway constrictions. And then the question comes, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Did the airway cause the joint? Did the joint cause the airway? I think that's a great question. And that's a question that many of us are, you know, I think this, uh, that's an issue for a lot of us. And a lot of us are asking that question and to which there, there may or may not be an answer. So maybe the chicken or the egg, we may not, we may not ever know. And I'm sure there are patients that are one or one then patients that are the other, but there's going to be a confluence of those two issues, joint Jeff, versus airway. Jeff Rouse and I is a good, good friend of Dennis and myself. And Jeff has really been at the forefront of bringing airway disordered breathing into the forefront in dentistry. Um, he and I just did, we're doing, uh, we just recorded the Spear Virtual Summit this year and we lectured together and the title of the program was, are we treating the same patient? Oh, interesting. That's great. Funding of joint-based and, and airway-based prosthodontics because we are, because we think about what happens. If you have a mandible that doesn't grow, usually you're going to end up with a compressed airway space. Yeah. That's, that's the reality of it. It is the same patient. It is the same patient. So now I, it's taken Jeff a long time to understand that the joints drive the whole thing, but he's coming around. <laughs> well, he's a prosthodontist, so you have to give him a little, you know, you give him a little. Those prosthodontists are confused on a higher level, I like to tell them. <laughs> that, that, I, I'm not going to tell you. I, apolo I apologize to all the prosthodontists on here, but <laughs> <laughs> we don't mean that. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Jim, I'm, we're going to need to wrap this up. And uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing, oh. sharing your time and your, your knowledge. Uh, I, I do, I want to finish with something. You, you've been successful in your practice. You've been successful in teaching others. What do you attribute your success to? Is it, uh, is it luck? Is it hard work? Is, what would you say if you, if, as you speak to our, our dental community here, what would you attribute your success to? Well, thank you for the compliment, Dennis. I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's, it's never been work. I'm really fortunate. I really enjoy what I do, so I don't look at it as work. Um, I'm lucky that my wife is a dentist, so we can do it together. So we spend a lot of time together doing this. It's been a great match for me. The intellectual part has been stimulating for me. Teaching and working with other dentists have really been, it fits my personality. I enjoy doing that. Um, so for me, I think the whole thing has been a blast. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I've enjoyed the practice. I've enjoyed the teaching part. Um, I My best advice is find something you like to do in dentistry and go after it as hard as you can because once you do it doesn't become a job it just becomes another fun way to spend the day i really do believe that you know dennis said there's always challenges running a practice but sure. i couldn't imagine doing anything else and enjoying as much as i've 
enjoy dentistry. So I feel really fortunate. So, so you're happy you didn't go into accounting? I'm happy I didn't go into accounting. It's been a good fit for me. I think dentistry is blessed that you didn't go into accounting. <laughs> and I can tell you that I am blessed, Jim, because my knowledge and foundation of joint reading MRIs, understanding CBCTs as it relates to, to the joint space, it would, I, I would not have this information if it hadn't been for your influence and your, your time spent with me, uh, helping me understand this. So for all of those out there, I know you're teaching out at Spear. Anywhere else that they can find you, uh, anywhere else uh, that we can help people get this information, any advice for them to, to seek out this information from you? Um, actually, I am. I'm a resident faculty at Spear, and I am in the occlusion seminar with Frank Spear and Greg Kinzer. The three of us teach it together. It's a fabulous course. We have a great time. It's, you know, Greg and Frank are just unbelievable educators. It's really an honor to, to share the stage with them. Um, and then Gary DeWood and I will be teaching the advanced occlusion workshop. Um, actually, we have one in October, so we're hoping to get that uh, going this year out at Spear. And that's going to be a three-day workshop on really the hands-on of doing what we're talking about. It, um, it'll be a great course. It's, uh, it'll be a real nuts and bolts course. It'll talk about the clinical aspects. It'll talk about the managerial aspects. We're going to talk about how to charge a fair fee for this and how to get paid for doing this because all this is really interesting. But unless you can get paid for doing this, is you can't do it. You know that was part of the realization. Um, but the other place I teach, you know, Mark Spear and I, uh, Mark Piper and I, excuse me, have run study clubs together for ten years. And Mark really, everything that I talk about is what Mark taught me. You know, I really wouldn't be teaching the joint pay stuff without Mark's influence, and I'm forever indebted to him for sharing his information with me because he's really been the guy who's pioneered this material. It's been easy for me to kind of talk about it and bring it to the restorative side, but really he's the guy that's done the heavy lifting. So Mark and I do study clubs together. Um, they're really, it's a fun format. It's two meetings a year and it's two days each meeting. One's in Chicago, one's in St. Pete. And um, the curriculum is different every time. It's a lot of treatment planning. It's a lot of case planning. It's a lot of verbal skills. Um, it's an awesome two days. So, and then I do a lot of study clubs, but um, I don't know. I just have a blast doing it. So I enjoy doing in-office courses too. Um, once in a while, I'll do some in-office courses in my office with probably six dentists. And a lot of times that's if a dentist calls me and says, hey, we put a course together for me and we'll do a day in the office. But um, anything I can do to help, I'd love to. Um, my personal bias is learn occlusion. You know, you're going to use it on every patient in your practice. And if you can learn occlusion, you become a more confident restorative dentist. Um, you become a more confident orthodontic dentist. And ultimately, a lot of the pay, you know, we've seen a real demographic change in the time the dentist and I practiced. You know, if I'm a young dentist today and I get out and I'm 26 years old, I don't have the same needs in the dental community that Dennis and I had. Correct. When we got out, a lot of times there were MOD amalgams that were going to need crowns over the course of our lifetime. Correct. The young dentists today don't have that because we've been able to significantly decrease the amount of caries that we see on a regular basis. But there are a ton of occlusion and joint-based problems. Yes. Learn how to treat more. them. Don't be afraid of them. It will, it will create a thriving practice for you. And people in your community are looking for people to send those patients to. Become that that's the truth. And uh, for me, for cosmetic dentistry, I get a lot of referrals from general oh. dentists 
and orthodontist, periodontist. And I'm sure that you get a ton of referrals. I know you yeah. do because I've referred uh, patients sure. to you. Sure. Jim, uh, we will set up some links on our DOT homepage to uh, your, uh, your information. So for those who are seeking to get some more knowledge from Jim, we'll make that accessible for you through our DOT uh, webpage. So my dear friend, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, and in these crazy times, and these are certainly crazy times, it is great to spend time, even if it's virtual, with our good friends. And I truly, every time when we speak, I learn so much. Well, at least when we're not talking football, uh, <laughs> we're talking dentistry. And I love the gasket on the refrigerator. And I'm going to use that with my patients because I think that's a perfect analogy. I love analogies Good. when I'm talking to my patients. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's a beautiful day in Chicago. So enjoy the great weather. I imagine you have some golf involved for later today or this week. I do. Perfect. I do. So for dental online trainers, until next time, I ask you to be safe in this crazy world of ours and learn from those who have been down the road before you seek mentorship, as Jim and I spoke about today, uh, yours for better dentistry. And until next time, I'm Dennis Hartlieb, and it's great sharing with you today. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much.